Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. About seven minutes after four o'clock. It's usually about the time we start. And the temperature, about 101 degrees at four o'clock this afternoon. I don't know if we're going to reach that 105. I've seen some reports 106. National News was publishing Portland expecting 107. I'm not so sure we're going to reach that, but it's been a pretty warm, uh, warm day. And with the uh, the smoke from the Canadian fires, that may prevent us from reaching the high temperatures that were anticipated. Um, also, I, did, I don't know if you even knew this, Clark, but the uh, air conditioning here in the building has uh, has now stopped. So uh, let's just make a pact here. If either one of us faints, then the other will revive uh, the one who's fainted. Okay, so we, we've got that down. And in the event that we're not able to continue, one or the other will rush into the room and um, attempt to revive the other. Anyway, I hope you're staying cool in this uh, very hot weather. We're still under what they're calling an excessive heat warning. Uh, that was issued by the National Weather Service. It continues today. Temperatures were expected to be in the mid-100s. It looks like 101 might be the high, although it could get a bit warmer uh, in uh, northwest Oregon and southwest Washington. The uh, or- the warning went into effect at about noon yesterday. It's scheduled to uh, last until 11 p.m. on Friday here in the Willamette Valley and the Coast Range, Cascade Foothills, uh, Columbia River Gorge, Upper Hood River Valley. Uh, the temperatures on Tuesday, 97 degrees. That's a high for Portland. It fell one degree short of the all-time August 1st record, so we didn't break that one. That record was 101 degrees, um, which is, of course, where we are right now today. Well, the forecast today was for a high of about 105 um, which uh, would be an August 2nd record, and 106 degrees on Thursday, which would also be a record. Uh, I don't think we're going to break the record here today. Tomorrow, we'll just have to wait and see. Friday could also reach triple digits. The extreme heat will end by the weekend, but temperatures will only fall uh, back to the 90s, so uh, still very hot. The all-time heat record for Portland is 107 degrees. That reach was reached rather in 1942, again in 1965, and in 1981. Portland-Vancouver area a garbage and recycling collection companies announced that they're going to start earlier than usual this week uh, due to the heat, and they asked that customers put their garbage and recycling out the night before it's normally collected. Now, this is for Dan Rice and I, Garbage Day. Uh, We always put it out on Wednesday night because they tend to come early on Thursday morning. And I have to say, uh, we have new neighbors. I've talked about Larry, our neighbor dog. Uh, But we have new neighbors. They are so gracious. Since Dan has been laid up uh, with his um, heart infection, they have taken our garbage down to the curb and brought it back up at the end of the day. Uh, Never said a word, just have have been kind to notice and to, uh, to reach out and Uh, And do that. It's been a real blessing. So garbage day has not been for us over the last five weeks, the worst day of the week. Um, It's been a a day of gratitude as our neighbors have graciously not only taken their stuff down and brought it back up, but ours as well. Uh, Anyway, so they're asking you to bring your garbage a little earlier if uh, if your garbage day falls within these uh, hot days ahead. And if you don't have air conditioning, there are lots of sources to help you keep a bit cooler. We mentioned some of the stay cool things uh, yesterday. Uh, If you can stay in an air conditioned place when the temperatures are high, that's a great uh, thing to do. We did have air conditioning earlier in the day. We no longer have that. But I don't think that means we have permission to leave 
this building to go to our homes or other air-conditioned facilities, so we're just going to have to soldier through it like many of you. Um, they say limit your exposure to the sun after 4 o'clock today. It's a little bit better. The UV rays are strongest before 4 o'clock, so uh, going out now would be uh, better for you than uh, early, earlier in the day would have been. Try to schedule your activities in the morning or in the evening. Windows open at night, closed during the day, keeping the uh, the blinds drawn and all of that. Use portable electric fans to remove the hot air from rooms to draw in cooler air. Wear loose-fitting clothes. You know all the uh, the usual stuff. You may have noticed it's rather hazy, and it's not a, a pollution alert other than the fact that this thick haze is from wildfires in British Columbia. They're laying over Portland today, obscuring visibility, impacting air quality. Let's hope that's not the case. Uh, when the great eclipse of 2017 arrives, thousands of people in British Columbia have been evacuated as wildfires throughout western Canada threaten homes there. Winds have pushed the wildfire smoke south into the northwest United States. Today, the smoke will move further into Portland and uh, throughout the uh, the day, according to the National Weather Service. Air quality monitors in southwest Washington and Portland-Vancouver metro area have shown uh, lowering air quality since uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, the air quality index at uh, 8 a.m. here in Portland was deemed by the DEQ as unhealthy for sensitive groups. People with respiratory problems, heart or lung disease, seniors and children should avoid heavy or prolonged exercise outside where you inhale deeply. The Oregon Health Authority also cautioned sensitive groups to stay inside, keep their windows and doors closed if possible, depending on the heat, and keep the air quality clean by not uh, frying or boiling food, which can add particles to indoor air. Never thought of that before. And if you have to drive, run the air conditioner on recirculate uh, to keep the smoky air from entering the interior of the car. The wildfires have caused air quality around Seattle to uh, deteriorate to uh, among the worst in the country, according to uh, uh, KGW News. There's a silver lining, however, temperatures uh, that were forecast to be in the mid-100s today and tomorrow in Oregon. Um, the Weather Service says that the smoke thickens. Uh, it could cut the temperature by a couple of degrees, which may explain why we've only reached 101 as of uh, 4 o'clock. So uh, that's, I suppose, the silver lining in an otherwise rough day. Also wanted to mention that uh, commuter problems continue today. At the TriMet, the agency said all rides system-wide are free today. The heat wave made for a nightmare commute for thousands of people on Tuesday, particularly in the evening. Mass trains uh, slowed to a crawl for hours. They were having some computer problems. According to the TriMet spokesperson, Tia York, the delay was due to those computer network uh, failures, the second of its kind in a matter of days. Well, this morning, Max uh, and the buses were running normally. However, ticket machines were not accepting payment cards, and riders weren't able to uh, load their um uh, hop card. So they decided today is free. On Saturday, TriMet's computer system essentially just shut down during an equipment install. Uh, Tuesday, crews were repairing the uh, reader board system when the network failed again. Uh, York, the spokesman for TriMet, said she didn't know when the latest network failure would be resolved. She said two more factors contributed to the delays. Temperatures rose above 90 degrees, not common here, here in the Portland metro area. And that required drivers to slow the max trains in high speed areas so drivers could watch for problems like kinks in the rail or downed wires. The orange line was also disrupted when a wire came down near the tracks. Many of the riders were diverted to alternate routes via shuttle buses. It's very frustrating if they don't have
have a better backup plan, said one traveler on the Orange Line. Uh, they told us there was a bus so that we went across the street, but the bus was uh, full. So they, they called and tried to make other arrangements, but it was a little bit of a, a tough trans, uh, transition for lots of folks just trying to get home. Uh, anyway, the hot temperatures will continue tomorrow. Hopefully the computer problems with uh, TriMet will be resolved and things will be, get to back uh, to normal as much as possible under these extreme conditions. All right, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Today on the program, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the uh, judicial appointments, the nominees uh, of the Trump administration. We'll also talk with author, or rather co-author, Don Brown, the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. That's also coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new report telling us what we already know if we drive in the Portland metro area. The so-called rush hour traffic now lasts six or more hours on some key Portland area highways. That's according to this new report from the Oregon Department of Transportation. I guess the response uh, for those of us who drive in town, yeah. Well, the agency found that the hours of congestion here in the Portland area grew by 13.6 percent from 2013 to 2015. The metro area's population grew 3 percent to 2.4 million during that span. But an economy on the upswing, that's put far more vehicles on the road. Vehicle hour delays were about 22.6 percent. Well, traffic congestion here in the Portland region can now occur at any hour of the day, including holidays and weekends, the report said. Again, duh. Uh, it's uh, no longer only a weekday peak hour problem. Well, eastbound U.S. 26 inbound uh, saw the biggest change over the two-year span. Congestion now begins at 6.15 a.m. and continues straight through 7.45 p.m. That route's morning commute congestion previously dissipated around 9.15 a.m. with traffic picking up again at noon. Uh, the report also found congestion uh, duration had increased by two hours during the evening commute on Interstate 5 southbound into the Rose Quarter. Drivers also now encounter three hours of uh, delay on Interstate 205 northbound between Interstate 5 Junction and the Abernathy Bridge, which crosses the Willamette River, bet- River rather between West Lynn and Oregon City. Well, two years ago, Bill Hurt of Oregon City moved to a work schedule that would allow him to leave his Lake Oswego employer at about 3 p.m. in an effort to spend more time with his family. Well, that helped until he switched jobs. Now he works in Beaverton. His commute on Oregon 217 is jammed daily. Even at 3 p.m., there's a reasonable amount of traffic, he says. If I leave late at 3.30 or even on a bad day at 4, I know I'm going to get home at about 5.30, 5.45. Well, the transportation package that was approved by the Oregon legislature last month tees up funding to add lanes in the Rose Quarter and replace the Abernathy Bridge, both paid in part by rush hour tools. Uh, the suite of transportation funding measures also includes a gas tax hike, high vehicle registration fees, a payroll tax, taxes on new cars and bicycles. And whether or not that will actually resolve uh, the problem or people will just simply have to move elsewhere because they can't afford to live here any longer. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. So goes a look at uh, what's happening in the metro area. Well, President Trump today joined two Republican senators uh, to champion legislation overhauling legal uh, immigration in America. And he's calling for a merit-based system that would significantly cut admissions over the next decade. Speaking at the White House, the president called it the most significant reform to our immigration system in a half century. 
As a candidate, I campaigned on creating a merit-based immigration system that protects U.S. workers and taxpayers, and that is why we are here today. End quote. He was joined by Georgia Senator David Perdue and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, the Republicans who first introduced the Reforming American Immigration for a Strong Economy, or RAISE Act, in February. Uh, they've said the legislation aims to reduce the number of green cards issued in half from one million to five hundred thousand a year. Uh, Trump, Purdue and Cotton argued on Tuesday that low skilled and unskilled immigration into the United States was depressing wages. According to a fact sheet released to reporters, the new system would favor immigrants who are educated, speak English and have high paying job offers. It would also reduce low skilled and unskilled labor immigration. Uh, Trump said new immigrants must be able to financially support themselves and their families. The Raise Act prevents new migrants uh, and new immigrants from collecting welfare and protect U.S. workers from being displaced, the president said. And that's a very big thing. They're not going to come in and just immediately go and collect welfare. Well, the bill would prioritize immediate family members of United States residents, including spouses and young children. But it would end prioritization of extended family members and adult children of residents. The legislation also eliminates the diversity visa lottery system that uh, limits the uh, permanent resident status for refugees uh, to 50,000 a year. The president l- uh, lamented how the country has uh, record numbers of green cards to low-wage immigrants. The White House uh, said most of the one million immigrants who are accepted into the United States for legal permanent residency every year are low or unskilled workers. Among the hardest hit by this, the president said, are minority workers who Uh, he said, are competing for jobs against brand new arrivals. It has not been fair to our people, to our citizens, to our workers, he said. Well, the administration also said 50 percent of immigrant households receive welfare benefits as opposed to 30 percent of native households in the country. And he's made uh, cracking down on illegal immigration a hallmark of his administration, has tried to slash federal grants to uh, cities that refuse to comply with the federal efforts to detain and deport those living in the country illegally. His involvement will put him at the center of efforts to make changes to uh, the legal immigration system. And those details were announced, at least in part, earlier today. Meanwhile, Defense Department investigators, they've discovered potential security risks in the Pentagon program that's enrolled more than 10,000 foreign-born individuals in the U.S. armed forces since 2009. Uh, with sources on Capitol Hill and at the Pentagon expressing alarm over foreign infiltration and enrollees now unaccounted for. Now, foreign infiltration. Now, these are individuals who um, have served in the U.S. armed forces since 2009. After more than a year of investigation, the Pentagon's inspector general recently issued a report. Its uh, content still classified, but its existence disclosed uh, for the first time identify serious problems with military accessions vital, as they call it, to the national uh, interest, a Department of Defense program that provides immigrants and non-immigrant aliens with an expedited path to citizenship in exchange for military service. The Defense Department officials said the program is still active, but acknowledged that new applicants have been suspended. Created in the final weeks of the Bush-Cheney administration and launched under then-President Barack Obama, Uh, The program was designed to recruit individuals with foreign language and other skills to Pentagon deemed useful and in short supply. The program is... um had many success stories, most notably the Army Soldier of the Year in 2012, Sergeant Cyril uh, Shretha, originally of Nepal, an independent analysis, uh, have found that the program recruits um, outperform non 
recruits uh, soldiers in critical areas. Yet concern over management of the program has grown over recent years. The program has been uh, replete with problems to include foreign infiltration, as Representative Steve Russell uh, of Oklahoma says. The lack of discipline in implementation of this program has created problems elsewhere. Uh, He went on to say he's a retired Army officer who sits on the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel. It was Russell who first publicly sounded alarms during the markup of the latest defense authorization bill in June. He noted the program has been replete with problems to include foreign infiltration, so much so that the Department of Defense is seeking to suspend the program due to those concerns. So the implementation of the program, identifying those uh, who uh, should not be... uh, uh, allowed to to uh, participate in the program apparently is the nature of the concern. Another lawmaker whose committee does not enjoy jurisdiction over the program, but whose panel could well come to focus on these problems, depending on their severity, says that um, the program has been compromised, in quotes, and that the Department of Defense officials have not presented answers to his questions about rising enrollees. Um, And some who are, in fact, missing. Where are they? Uh, What do they know? Where are they serving? What are their numbers? And so on. We'll continue to follow this uh, this story as the Department of Defense is continuing its investigation into uh, concerns that have now been raised. President Trump today signed a bill imposing sanctions on Russia after the legislation overwhelmingly passed the House and the Senate. The stiff financial sanctions were championed by lawmakers in both parties, and the president's signature could escalate tensions with Moscow as if that were possible, which already has ordered a reduction in the number of U.S. diplomats there. The bill itself targets Iran and North Korea as well as Russia. We've talked about it, the president now having signed it. But a cornerstone of the legislation was a provision barring the president from even easing or waiving the additional penalties on Russia unless Congress agrees. The provisions were included to assuage concerns among lawmakers that the president's push for better relations with Russia uh, and Russian President Vladimir Putin might lead to him to relax the penalties without first securing concessions from the Kremlin. Uh, now, Trump made clear his concerns about the, such provisions in a written statement released by the White House on Wednesday. He said while he favors tough measures to punish and deter aggression and destabilize behavior in all the all three countries, this legislation is significantly flawed. In its haste to pass the legislation, the Congress included a number of clearly unconstitutional provisions, he said, outlining numerous alleged constitutional conflicts. Vice President Pence, in an interview with Fox News during a visit to Montenegro, where he's meeting with allies there, said, despite the president's concern, the legislation highlights his commitment to holding these nations accountable. President Trump believes whatever frustration that we feel for Congress limited his authority that on balance, this legislation reaffirms the president's strong commitment to ongoing sanctions with Russia to make it clear their destabilizing behaviors are not acceptable to the United States and that ongoing provocations from North Korea and Iran will no longer be acceptable. The Senate passed the bill 98 to 2, two days after the House pushed the measure through by an overwhelming margin of 419 to 3. Both were veto proof numbers, upping pressure, uh, pressure rather on the president to sign the legislation. Well, the uh, the law is aimed at punishing Moscow for meddling in the 2016 presidential election and its military aggression in Ukraine and Syria, where the Kremlin had backed President Bashar Assad. Uh, signing a bill that penalizes Russian election interference would mark a significant shift for Trump. He's repeatedly cast doubts on the conclusion of the U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia did, in fact, seek to tip the election in his favor. And he uh, he's blasted as a witch hunt investigations into the extent Russian interference 
uh, and whether the Trump campaign colluded with uh, Moscow. The 184-page bill seeks to hit uh, Putin and the oligarchs there close to him by targeting Russian corruption, human rights abusers, and crucial sectors of the Russian economy, including weapons states, sales rather, and uh, energy exports. Uh, in recent days, though, Trump has suggested he's tougher on Russia than many believe. The bill underwent revisions to address concerns voiced by American oil and natural gas companies that sanctions specific to Russia's energy sector could backfire on them uh, to benefit Moscow. The bill raised the threshold for when U.S. firms would be prohibited from being part of energy projects that also included Russian businesses. Lawmakers said that they made the adjustments so the sanctions on Russian energy sector didn't undercut the ability of U.S. allies and Europe to get access to oil and gas resources outside of Russia. Again, the president's signature on that bill. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Malcolm about the president's judicial nominations. We'll also talk with co-author Don Brown. The book, The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Senator Ron Johnson uh, on Obamacare says this, with repeal off the table, the media suddenly is discovering that Obamacare is in deep trouble. Now they tell us, he writes, that after spending months pumping out stories about how great Obamacare is, the news media are now admitting that, lo and behold, Obamacare is unsustainable. What changed, he asks. Well, on Saturday, the New York Times ran a big story that began this way. Republicans have failed to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now can it be repaired? Repaired. Well, up until last week, the Times had been reassuring its readers that Obamacare was doing just fine. In an April story, for example, it said that growing evidence suggests that the markets are far from collapsed. Several recent analyses argue that this year's increase was a market correction and that a smoother market would follow in the years ahead. End quote. It added that many insurers had been struggling to make money, but now seem closer to breaking even. Another Times article from a few months back quoted Gary Claxon, a vice president at the Kaiser Family Foundation, saying that things are getting better. In fact, we were told that the only reason that Obamacare markets were struggling now was because Republican repeal threats were creating uncertainty. Well, now the Times is telling readers that even people who rely on its coverage agree that it still has big problems. Reuters, meanwhile, published a story that day after the Senate repeal votes uh, failed, uh, reporting that hundreds of U.S. uh, counties are at risk of losing access to private health coverage in 2018 as insurers consider pulling out of those markets in the coming months. Well, this information had been widely available for months, but was apparently of no interest to Reuters before the repeal effort collapsed. Reuters also quotes a Kaiser official warning about how the number of counties with no insurers could easily grow significantly if a couple major insurers decide to exit. If everything was getting better, as Kaiser previously was saying, why would any insurers be thinking about exiting? Well, CNN Money waited until Saturday to quote Marilyn Tavener, who was Obamacare's creator in the Obama administration and now heads the insurance industry lobby, saying that the status quo is not sustainable. Wasn't that a big lie when Republicans were saying the same thing just a few days ago? Go figure. Why are those Obamacare uh, in, uh, is in peril stories appearing now and not while repeal was being considered when such information might have informed the debate? For one simple reason. Publishing stories suggesting that Obamacare is unsustainable would have been seen by reporters and their editors as 
helping Republicans. Well, that's a cardinal sin for any mainstream news outlet today. Now, with repeal apparently off the table, it's safe to talk about Obamacare's warts because Democrats are now eager to talk about fixing Obamacare with, well, more Obamacare. It is a a crass display of how today's agenda-driven news media does a huge disservice to the public. Again, Senator Ron Johnson on the uh, new revelation on the status of Obamacare. Well, just yesterday, I mean, that the Treasury Secretary said that uh, within the year, there would be a bipartisan tax overhaul. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday said that Republicans are prepared to go it alone with on tax reform, saying that the GOP and Democrats are too far apart on basic principles or even a try for consensus. He was responding hours after Democrats laid out uh, their red line saying they want to cooperate, but will work only on plans they don't uh, rather that don't benefit the wealthy or increase the deficit. Now, how do you define benefit the wealthy? That's uh, a bit fungible. Those are non-starters for Republicans who say that tax rates must be cut across the board to get the economy roaring. And that trumps, no pun intended, even the growing deficit. Um, Mr. McConnell, who's a Kentucky Republican, said, I don't think this is uh, going to be uh, 1986 when you have the bipartisan effort to scrub the code. Well, the White House has set an aggressive timetable for getting a deal done this year. And Senate Republicans said that means turning to the same fast track budget procedure that they tried to use in their failed attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. The reconciliation process allows bills to pass without facing a Democratic filibuster. But it would constrain the GOP's ability to write a lasting overhaul that doesn't deepen the deficit. Mr. McConnell said there might be a few Democrats willing to reach across the aisle, but he explicitly rejected Senate Democrats' other demand that Republicans forego reconciliation. Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, kicked off the day with a uh, with a letter signed by most of the Democratic caucus laying out his party's principles for getting involved. They said they will not support any plan that cuts taxes for the top one percent or an effort to pass deficit finance tax cuts and said reconciliation would be a recipe for Republicans to jam through partisan short term tax cuts. Mr. Schumer said the GOP should have learned its lesson after going it alone on health care, you know, like the Democrats did back in what was it, 2010, only to see their bill collapse when they couldn't even muster support within their own conference. Well, there's a real potential for bipartisan support on tax reform, but I think our Republican colleagues dictated by the Koch brothers, hard right wing of their party, is running away from it, Mr. Schumer of uh, of New York uh, said, well, th- three Democrats uh, did not sign on to Mr. Schumer's new letter. Each of the three senators, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota and Joe Manchin of uh, West Virginia, faced pretty tough reelection fights next year in the states. Uh, President Trump won easily. So that explains that the offices of uh, Mr. Donnelly and Ms. Heitkamp uh, did indicate that uh, the senators stand ready to work on the issue on a bipartisan basis. Mr. Manchin said that he's uh, likewise holding out hope for a bipartisan deal, saying it would be kind of hard for Republicans to pass a package without reaching out to Democrats. It works better if we work together. It always has. Hence Obamacare and the mess we're in now. Well, the most important that was my editorial comment, not his. The most important thing is no more debt, uh, said Mr. Manchin. We got enough debt. Can't we do something that doesn't increase the debt? That's a quote, by the way. Senate Finance Chairman uh, 
Orrin Hatch, a key tax writer, did say that he would prefer not to use the reconciliation process, if possible, and that he thinks tax reform can get done this year. But it's going to take a bipartisan effort. Republicans say a major sticking point is the size of the tax cuts and therefore the amount of additional deficits that would pile up. If you have no ability to use the short-term deficits to grow your economy, then you're basically starting the conversation off on a hard no. That's a quote from Senator Tim Scott. South Carolina Republican. So Treasury Secretary says within a year, McConnell says eh, not so much, or at least not a bipartisan uh, long-term plan that, um, uh, that can succeed. Well, more than a dozen retired generals and admirals have signed a letter to the president thanking him for his uh, announced policy to ban transgender people from the armed forces. Now, mind you, these are retired military personnel, and this is what they wrote. We write today to express our gratitude to you for making the extremely courageous decision to reverse President Obama's transgender social experiment. These are conservative retired flag officers. Uh, There may be an enormous amount of vitriol directed at you for making this policy correction, but please know that overturning this policy may have done more in the long term to save the culture and warfighting capacity of the U.S. military than perhaps any other military policy you will adopt as president, end quote. Well, the letter came as the Palm Center, a research nonprofit that promotes the LGBT agenda, released a competing statement from 56 retired admirals and generals who say reimposing the ban will hurt readiness, not help. So you've got retirees on both sides saying the opposite thing. The commander in chief, they wrote, has tweeted a total ban of honorably serving transgender troops. Their statement said this proposed ban, if implemented, would cause significant disruptions, deprive the military of mission critical talent and compromise the integrity of transgender troops who would be forced to live a lie as well as non-transgender peers who would be forced to choose between reporting their comrades or disobeying policy, end quote. Well, among the statement's signatories, retired Marine General John Allen, former deputy commander of the U.S. Central Command, retired Vice Admiral Donald Arthur, uh, Arthur, rather, Arthur, former Surgeon General of the Navy, and retired Lieutenant General Claudia Kennedy, the first woman to achieve a three-star rank in the Army. Well, after being pressed by social conservatives, Mr. Trump announced his decision on the 26th uh, via his uh, favorite com- communications mechanism, Twitter. Uh, it caught off guard Defense Secretary James Mattis and uh, top brass who issued statements saying nothing would change until they received written White House orders. No such orders, as far as we know, have yet been issued. For now, the Obama policy remains. Transgender troops may serve openly and obtain medical benefits such as gender reassignment surgeries and other treatments. The decision on whether to allow the recruits is pending after Mr. Mattis pushed July 1st deadline to the end of the year. He ordered the services to study the effects of transgender troop readiness. And it was in the midst of that um, study period that the president made his announcement that has yet to be followed up with uh, a direct order. And we'll uh, continue to follow the back and forth on that story. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we're going to talk with co-author Don Brown, along with uh, Captain Jerry uh, Yellen. The book is The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I don't know how it is for you on the other side of the glass there, Clark, but it's getting a little warm in here. We uh, learned just before the program that the air conditioning has gone out. In the, I don't know if it's in the entire building or it's the entire building. Yeah, you can definitely uh, 
definitely tell. Wow. Looking forward to going outside and cooling off a bit. (laughs) Hey, coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Malcolm. The president has nominated somewhat 55 judicial nominees. They serve their federal posts. They would serve for life. And the legacy of uh, any uh, executive appointing uh, federal judges will be the content of our conversation. We're also going to talk with um, Don Brown, who, along with um, Captain Jerry Yellen, uh, co-authored The Last Fighter Pilot. Jerry Yellen was the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. It's a fascinating book. It's an easy read. It's a relatively quick read, but it puts into perspective the experience of an individual in those final days of uh, of the World War uh, that uh, in the Pacific Theater. So we'll uh, get into that in the five o'clock hour. Well, conservatives are warning the president that short-term victories from, for example, killing the filibuster could be very costly. I think Democrats have learned at least an element of that lesson, having changed the rules that now make it possible for Republicans to exploit them. Well, Americans would look, uh, America rather, would look quite different without Senate filibusters in the first six years of President Barack Obama's administration, giving pause to conservatives as the current president, Donald Trump, demands an end to the legislative tool. This would end the Senate as we know it and make it just a smaller version of the House. Brian Darling, president and founder of Liberty Government Affairs, uh, says getting rid of the filibuster makes it a lot easier to grow government. Now, it may seem convenient at the time. You can accomplish what you want to accomplish more quickly, but the long-term ramifications ought to be considered. Many are, are suggesting. Darling and other conservatives note that Obama's a failure such as a cap-and-trade energy bill in his first term and gun control legislation in his second would have been successes without Senate Republicans' ability as the minority party at the time to block bills by using the legislative filibuster, the same legislative filibuster that will serve the Democrats under the, a, a Republican administration. Obamacare would be much worse because after Scott Brown's election, Democrats lost their 60-vote majority and they had to dial back. Darling also points out, in early 2010, you might remember, Member, Brown won the Senate race in Massachusetts that denied Republican or rather Democrats a filibuster proof majority in the Senate. The filibuster allows a minority in the Senate, and there's always one, uh, or sometimes just one member to temporarily block legislation that normally could pass with 51 votes of the chamber's 100 votes. It takes 60 votes to break a filibuster and advance the bill to a floor vote. Now, sometimes it's useful if you are on the side of a particular piece of legislation. Sometimes it's Uh, frustratingly maddening uh, if you are opposed to legislation, but it is that fail-safe, it is that uh, that, uh, stopgap that uh, gives the deliberative body of the Senate an opportunity to, well, deliberate and debate. Republicans and Democrats alike have expressed both admiration for and disdain for the procedure, depending on which party holds the Senate majority. And that's the problem. Uh, The tendency is, if my party is in the majority and it serves me at this moment, Uh, You want to jettison uh, the filibuster, and the reverse is also true. Uh, Ending the legislative filibuster also would empower Senate leadership and weaken individual members, Darling points out. One example, he says, is when a 2013 effort by Senator Ted Cruz uh, to cause a temporary government shutdown kept alive the GOP agenda to repeal Obamacare. But reeling from the Senate's failure to pass any version of legislation to, in fact, repeal and replace Obamacare, Trump insisted in a series of tweets over the weekend that it is time to do away with the filibuster, which he considers outdated. 
Well, again, it's only outdated when it happens to uh, prevent you from achieving your legislative ends. Well, a February report by the Heritage Foundation stressed that the nuclear option, Politico's term for ditching the filibuster, isn't the only means that uh, Republicans or, for that matter, Democrats' disposal uh, when they're trying to combat the obstruction of the other party. Rather, the think tank's report said standing Senate rules could be effective. Specifically, the report cited by Rule, let's see, 110, also known as the two-speech rule for Senate uh, for the Senate floor. We've talked about it here before. It would allow the Senate to remain in the same legislative day until filibustering members exhaust their ability to speak on a nominee. Well, the rule may be used to shorten the amount of time senators are allowed to filibuster. It is uh, in force until no member remains on the Senate floor who wishes to speak or is allowed to speak. And in uh, 2013, then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid led a change in rules to do away with the filibuster for presidential nominees on judicial posts, primarily as a way to push Obama's lower court judges through Republicans' objections. Reid carved out an exception for Supreme Court nominees. However, the Republican majority killed it this year in order to confirm Justice Neil Gorsuch to the high uh, the high court. Darling, who's a former aide to Senator Rand Paul of uh, Kentucky, did a 2011 paper on the filibuster for the Heritage Foundation where he was in charge of relations with the Senate. And Darling said he supports having the filibuster in place for both judicial nominations and legislation. But he stressed that doing away with the filibuster for legislation could be a bigger problem. He said that without it, uh, Obama would have signed more bills into law from 2009 through 2014. And if you fast forward to 2017, um, uh, Trump would have uh, the ability to sign more bills into law from 2017 to whenever his uh, presidency ends. In 2010, the House passed the cap and trade bill to regulate carbon emissions. The bill died in the Senate, though, when uh, Reid didn't think that he had the support to push it through the uh, chamber, conservatives said uh, the bill would have set uh, limits for carbon emissions, but allow companies to trade permits to meet the limits. Opponents called it cap and trade. And you'll probably remember that debate uh, back then. So the back and forth on Senate rules in the in the wake of the speech that was in places eloquent and other places a bit maddening by John McCain returning from his diagnosis of brain cancer um, represents, reflects the ongoing debate on the short term benefits of the Senate morphing into something more akin to the House or standing by rules that have stood the test of time, although, uh, again, frustrating and maddening when you happen to be on the party on the other side of a particular issue. Well, in 2010, there was a desperate need to get the projected cost of Obamacare under a trillion dollars. And at the time, Democrats used accounting gimmicks and sleight of hand to achieve that goal. It included collecting Obamacare taxes from day one while pushing off full implementation and therefore the costs for half a decade. The stripping $700 billion uh, from Medicare to help pay for Obamacare as well. But one largely overlooked gimmick was uh, Obama's federal takeover of the student loan industry. Well, as Democrats told it, evil, greedy private lenders were preying on poor, hapless college students, loaning them tens of thousands of dollars for college tuition and then having the audacity to expect the loans to be repaid. Well, Democrats promised the federal takeover would bring lower rates and friendlier repayments for hundreds of thousands of students. And this has, in fact, worked out fantastically for the students 
But it's, well, it's just the taxpayers who've gotten shaft. For decades, the federal government has offered students um, student loan forgiveness programs to certain groups of government workers. Now, these efforts targeted a limited number of students in specific categories, like teachers and schools with mostly low-income students. The forgivable debt was limited to relatively small amounts, around $5,000. In 2007, Congress created a program that would forgive the student loans of people who work in public service for 10 years. Well, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness, or PSLF, program was expanded to allow both government and nonprofit employees to participate. Under that program, employees make monthly loan payments tied to their income level, and after 10 years of payments, the loan balances are forgiven, no matter how high the remaining balance. Well, the eligibility criteria has been expanded so broadly that a staggering 25% of the American workforce meets the participation requirements. Now, not surprisingly, the number of enrollees in Uh, These programs exploded to the point where we now see 60,000 new enrollees per quarter. More than half of these loans are for uh, more than $50,000 and a third for more than $100,000, meaning a large number of loans, the bulk of which will land on taxpayers' backs, are to graduate students who who will soon become some of the highest earners in society. Well, as detailed by the American Enterprise Institute's Jason Delissel, according to the repayment estimator on the federal student loan website, a student with a $50,000 loan making an adjusted uh, gross income of $40,000, which, by the way, does not include pre-tax contributions to things like health insurance premiums, retirement savings, or student loan interest payments, would pay back just $30,168 over 10 years, being forgiven of the additional $49,832 in principal and accrued interest, meaning the borrower pays back uh, just 37.7% of the loan. Now, even more astounding is that the exact same amount, $30,168, is paid back uh, on the $100,000 loan, meaning $129,832 is forgiven for a loan repayment of just 18.85%. Like Obamacare itself, which doubled in costs in less than three years, this program has uh, the PSLF program has quickly blown past initial estimates in part because Obama made the program originally available only to students taking out loans in 2014 and after retroactive. Uh, It was originally thought the program would see limited participation. I don't know who thought that, uh, but the Congressional Budget Office projected the cost of the program would be about $265 million over 10 years. Last year, the CBO revised its projection to $6.7 billion. Now, again, $265 million over 10 years. Now that's been projected to $6.7 billion. And then two weeks ago, the CBO again revised its estimate, quadrupling it, that estimate, to $24 billion over the next 10 years. Ever ballooning cost is a feature of government programs after all. Wow. We'll leave it at that, but it won't be the last word on the subject. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, you'll be happy to know that it's not all chaos at the White House. The president has been steadily delivering on his promise to appoint conservative judges. The health care push collapsed. The White House is... Uh, 
the scene of a frantic game of musical chairs and the specter of the Russian investigation has plagued the president since he took office. But in the middle of all of this, the administration is steadily making progress on a campaign promise that will outlast his administration for decades, the confirmation of federal judges to lifetime positions on the bench. Well, John Malcolm joins us. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation to talk about Trump's judicial nominations, where they stand and uh, the legacy they're likely to represent moving forward. Thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you, Georgine. Well, the president is moving at a, a pretty steady pace in uh, nominating conservative judges to the courts. Um, you're, uh, you've been following this and um, make the point that he is being advised by the uh, White House uh, counsel, Don McGahn and his team. He's nominated, uh, what, 25 highly qualified men and women to the federal bench. Tell us a little bit about this process and where we stand and what kind of legacy uh, the administration is building for itself. Sure, it's actually now 24 because one of those nominees got confirmed last night. That's uh, right. Kevin Newsom on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So he's gotten five of his nominees through. Uh, so look, he's got this huge opportunity. I mean, there are 890 federal judges in this country, uh, and there are currently 137 vacancies uh, on the federal bench and a number 20 and another 22 that are right around the horizon. So even though we're early in his administration, that's 159 vacancies that he's got to fill. Uh, he has nominated now 24 eminently qualified men and women to these uh, positions. It, it, it can't come too soon. I mean, you know, there was a distinct leftward tilt uh, that occurred in the federal courts over the uh, Obama administration. We would have had a very different Supreme Court if either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton had gotten to replace Antony Scalia. When Obama took the oath of office, one out of the 13 courts of appeals had a majority of Democratic-appointed judges. Now it's nine out of 13, uh, and a number of very conservative courts uh, definitely tilted towards the left uh, over the last eight years. But the president's got this great opportunity, and, and he, the people that he's nominating are all outstanding. Uh, the Senate is acting at a glacial pace when it comes to uh, confirming these nominees, not only to the judicial branch, but also to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Now, Democratic senators have, as you pointed out in uh, some of your comments, they've deployed a myriad of procedural delay tactics, and that has been responsible in part for the uh, the confirmation crawl as we're witnessing it. Now, is this just payback for what what the Republicans did under the Obama administration? Because it seems to me the numbers were more favorable last time around. Yeah, look, so let's pick an example. After six months uh, in office, the Senate has confirmed 55 of Donald Trump's uh, nominees. Uh, After six months in office... Yeah, well, no, they've confirmed 55 of of Trump's nominees. After six months in office, Obama had 206 Ah. of his nominees uh, confirmed. So, you know, roughly four times the number of nominees had been confirmed six months in. Now, you know, I don't know what... Uh, what reason the Democrats will give for this kind of obstruction, but they are insisting, for example, on 30 hours of debate for every nominee. Not all of these nominees are controversial. Let me give you an example. So one of the five judges that has been confirmed is to a federal district court judgeship in Idaho. That person's name is David Nye. He was a justice on the Idaho Supreme Court. He had been nominated by President Obama. 
President Trump offering an olive branch uh, to the Democrats renominated David Nye. The Democrats insisted on 30 hours of debate for David Nye, tying up the Senate for 30 hours, and at the end of the day, he was confirmed 100 to nothing. <laughs> but that is the kind of tactics and roadblocks that Democratic senators have been employing in order to stall uh, these nominees and to stall the Trump agenda. Very frustrating. Um, with the vacancies that are currently available, is there anything that the Republicans in the Senate can do to expedite this? Or is this just a matter of uh, a partisan waltz that uh, is a little behind the music? Well, they're talking about it. Uh, so actually, there was an op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal by James Langford, who's a senator from Oklahoma. He has proposed uh, changing the rules to limit the debate on nominees to eight hours. Uh, and in fact, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin has suggested limiting it to sub-cabinet level positions and to judicial nominees to two hours. Uh, whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. Another tactic that the Democrats are employing is something called the blue slip process, uh, in that usually a home state senator has to return an approval that's on a blue form, which is why it's called a blue slip, before a nomination can go forward. And some of the Democratic senators are withholding their blue slips for an inordinate amount of time uh, for some very, very highly qualified men and women. Well, again, it's it's very frustrating, particularly when you have qualified individuals who have been nominated and the, the fact that there are so many uh, vacancies in place. One of the points that you made in your comments was the fact that uh, the the judges that uh, the president is nominating are, are likely to be the strongest um, part of his legacy of the of the Trump administration, because these are lifetime appointments. Yeah, no, that's right. Look, Antonin Scalia, who passed away you know, last year. Uh, served for 30 years uh, after he, uh, after President Reagan left office. And Anthony Kennedy, who was a Reagan appointee, is still on the bench. Clarence Thomas, a George H.W. Bush a nominee, had just passed 25 years on the bench. So yes, these, these judges are around occupying the third branch of government uh, and will serve as a lasting legacy. And the president has been given an opportunity to reshape the direction of the court, quite possibly uh, for generations to come, especially if, as is widely anticipated, he gets at least one more nomination to the Supreme Court. Uh, it's a huge opportunity, and he's taking advantage of it by nominating some outstanding uh, people to the bench, but you know, they do have to get confirmed. Now, one of the complaints that the Democrats have had is that uh, the uh, Bar Association hasn't had the opportunity to to vet and to speak to all of the nominees that uh, the Trump administration has brought forward. Is that a legitimate complaint? And what role does the bar play in, in helping senators to appreciate the value or lack of experience and qualifications of these nominees? You know, the American Bar Association is, uh, albeit a vaunted one, a trade association. Uh, it tends to have a traditionally a leftward tilt. Uh, it doesn't have an official role at all in the nomination or confirmation process. Uh, Democratic presidents have tend to rely heavily on, uh, on the recommendations that come out of the committee uh, at the ABA that looks at judicial nominees. Uh, others, like George W. Bush, for instance, said, look, you can continue to rate nominees if you want to, but it has no official role uh, in at least the White House is thinking about this thing. I'm not quite sure how President Trump 
uh, Trump is uh, treating the ABA's uh, recommendations. But whatever they are, there's no formal role. There's no requirement that the ABA's views on anything, uh, you know, that anyone needs to pay any attention to them. The ABA has done this. It's a valuable service, I suppose, uh, but that should not slow up this process. So at the pace that we're seeing now, in the absence of any uh, any pressure that's brought to bear that it accelerates the whole thing, what are we looking at uh, the entire first term before these judges uh, are given the opportunity for um, advice and consent by the Senate? Well, something's going to have to give. Uh, but yes, if you're insisting on 30 hours of debate per nominee, uh, then you're basically going to only consider two nominees per week. Uh, there are right now 198 pending nominees by the oh Trump administration. He's still got a bunch more to make. Uh, so something will have to give. There's some discussion, actually, that over the next couple of weeks, uh, there may be a bunch of confirmations before the Senate goes out on recess, I guess, in a week and a half. But we'll see. Uh, but the Democrats have certainly adopted the mantra of resist, uh, and nowhere is that being felt more uh, keenly than with respect to these nominees. Hmm. Well, it's good news is that the Senate doesn't have anything else to do. Oh, wait, they do have a few more things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll continue to follow and uh, try to put a little pressure uh, of our own on these uh, these men and women who are charged with uh, representing the interests of the American people rather than their own. Uh, John Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Again, John Malcolm is the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, looking forward to a conversation with Don Brown. He's the co-author of The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II, a fascinating account of events that take place on Iwo Jima. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on the morning of August 15th, 1945, Captain Jerry Yellen flew the last combat mission of World War II out of Iwo Jima. Today, Captain Yellen is a sharp, engaging 93-year-old veteran whose story is brought to life by best-selling author Don Brown. From April to August of 1945, Captain Jerry Yellen and a small group of fellow fighter pilots rather, flew dangerous bombing and strafing missions out of Iwo Jima over Japan. Even days after America dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on the 6th of August and Nagasaki on the 9th, the pilots continued to fly. Though Japan had suffered unimaginable devastation, the emperor still refused to surrender. Well, best-selling author Don Brown sits down with Yellen to tell the incredible true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Nine days after Hiroshima, on the morning of August the 15th, Yellen and his wingman, First Lieutenant Philip Schlamberg, they took off from Iwo Jima to bomb Tokyo, and the story is a fascinating one. Well, Don Brown is a former U.S. Navy JAG officer and special assistant U.S. attorney. He's the author of 13 legal and military books. His works include the best-selling novels Treason in 2005 and Malacca Conspiracy in 2010, as well as the expose call sign Extortion 17, the shootdown of SEAL Team 6 in 2015, a highly detailed account of the most deadly American loss of life in the Afghan war. Excuse me. The shootdown of a U.S. Army Chinook helicopter carrying 13 Americans, including 17 members of the vaunted SEAL Team 6. He joins us today to talk about the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, good afternoon. I'm so happy to be with you today. I'm 
I know you work. I'm a fan of your work, and so therefore it's a special blessing to be here. And thank you for that nice introduction. I don't couldn't have done any better myself. <laughs> well, know. thank you. So thanks so much for those gracious words. Well, let me ask for listeners who perhaps are not as familiar with the war or the history of of the, uh, the the combat that took place on Iwo Jima. Why is it important for us to be reminded in some detail the recollections of an individual who was there at the very end of this very long and, and treacherous uh, war? Well, first of all, we know that those who are who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. And um, our World War II generation is disappearing more rapidly every day. I just had lunch with Captain Jerry Ellen, and he pointed out that even the youngest World War II vet, now even the youngest, is probably around 90. If they were 18, you know, and went in in 45, in the end of the war, you look at, uh, you look at uh, how rapidly they're disappearing. And, uh, and they're national treasures. Yes. This, this mission is a historic mission. It's certainly it, it, it's something that history has forgotten until this book now is being published. And I want to thank you for helping us get the word out. But, but if you think about it, what if we were able to go back and talk to some of the founding fathers at the time of the American Revolution or talk to Lincoln or any, even any commanders from the Civil War? Uh, these, are, these guys are national treasures. You know, Winston Churchill once said, really, uh, of, a, of, a, of the Royal Air Force that never has so many owed so much to so few. Yes. And here in America today, those words have become prophetic again as we think about our World War II generation. It's true that for us, never have so many owed so much to so few. So that's why it's important. And uh, and when I learned uh, of Jerry's story, and I learned of it uh, through actually a YouTube video that had been uh, recorded in March of 2015 on the island of Iwo Jima. And the Japanese government and the U.S. military had invited uh, veterans of that of that massive marine assault back to Iwo Jima to commemorate. And, of course, only a very few were able to come. Well, Jerry was there in uniform and was interviewed. And I started to watch it. He was standing there on the windswept beaches of Iwo Jima, very humble. Uh, what did you do, Captain? What did you do in the war? He said, I, I flew fighter planes. I flew P-51s for the last six months of the war. He went on to explain that all the guys, none of the guys that he served with were able to come back. Just about all of them are gone. Uh, some were killed there cut off at 18, 19, and 20 years of age, which had a devastating effect on Jerry Catmullen himself, and others have passed away in the year since. So he had come back, he said, to stand there for them, to represent them, because they could not represent themselves. And then he, he went on to say that he had flown the final mission of the war on the day that the Japanese, that the emperor uh, was announcing the Japanese surrender on the air, and that his wingman, a young 19-year-old young man named Lieutenant Phil Schwamberg, 19 years old, from Brooklyn, a Jewish a Jewish kid, just like Jerry himself. They were the only two Jewish pilots in the squadron. We're flying the last mission, and Phil was on Jerry's wing. They went in to attack a Japanese airfield, um, and when they pulled up into the clouds, Jerry emerged from the clouds, and Phil was gone. Young Lieutenant Phil Schwamberg apparently had been shot down by anti-aircraft fire, trailing him into the clouds, and is the last known combat death of World War II. And when I heard this, it was just it just grip was gripping me. And Jerry closed the interview by saying, the greatest honor of my life was to serve my country. So I knew I had to try to write this if the doors would open to it. And the doors have opened. Thank the Lord. I'm very grateful to be here with you and then help try to get the story out. You know, it's very somber when you read the details of, of one man's experience. And he makes the point that this isn't just his story. It's the story of all the men who served with him. He, he writes that we were the men of the 70, uh, the 78th Fighter Squadron of the 15th Fighter Group of the 17th 
uh, Fighter Command of the U.S. Uh, Army Air Force. Our first assignment was to land on Iwo Jima, a pork chop shaped island of only eight square miles. It was a much tougher battle there than was originally planned for and anticipated, but that's where his military experience began. That's exactly right. And, of course, many of us have seen that classic photograph by Joe Rosenthal of the Marines pushing the flag up on Iwo Jima. Now, as a Navy veteran myself, I like to point out that in the original picture, there was a U.S. Navy corpsman involved in pushing the flag up. So that's just an inter-service rivalry thing. But seriously, we've seen that great photo of the Marines pushing the flag up on Iwo Jima. It is a, a symbol of the U.S. Marine Corps. It is There's a, 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 there's a great monument in D.C. of that, of that scene. But very few people know why we took Iwo Jima. The reason we took Iwo Jima is because we needed an air base in the middle of the ocean. We needed an air base to put these fighter planes on because we had been running. Iwo Jima was invaded by the Marines. Our D-Day was February the 19th, 1945. Europe was about to fall by the time the Marines, uh, you know, began to invade Iwo Jima. They, it took them from February the 19th of 1945 until March the 26th to fully clear Iwo Jima of the enemy. Well, on March the 7th, two weeks before the island was even safe, these guys, Captain Young and his fellow flyers, fly in and land in a hot zone. They land in a hot zone. The fighting was still going on and eight square miles. Let me tell you what that means. That means the island's about two miles long from one end to the other, one end being Mount Suribachi, that mountain at, the, at one end, and everything else flattens out like a pancake, and only about 800 yards wide. And there were 80,000 Marines and 22,000 Japanese tunneled under the island. So these guys land on this airfield, and as soon as they land, the first thing that Jerry Young will tell you is the thing that hit him was the stench of death. Yes. He still had his glass canopy over his over the cockpit, which was the cockpit, pulling this plane in, but there are mounds of bodies, marine bodies, just mountains of bodies lined up all along that runway that they had not been able to bury yet. And, of course, there were flies swarming them, and the stench was almost more than could take. They jump out of the plane on March the 7th when they first get there, and are told to stay low, get a shovel, dig a foxhole now. We're not done. you got to stay down. So the first night, these pilots had flown from Saipan, and now they're on this this deserted, windswept island in the middle of the Pacific, thousand miles from home, where a battle's going on. And that whole first night, they're laying in these shallow foxholes, hearing mortar fire going off, you know, hearing gunfire going off, not knowing if they will even survive the night to be able to go up in their planes the next day. So that's the environment that they came in. All this and, and the stories that we recount in Last Fighter Pilot, and this is another reason it's important for us to get this down now, is to remind us that freedom isn't free. And that is so true on multiple levels, but we need to know that and we need to be reminded of it every day. Oh, absolutely. And you think about how young these uh, these men were. Some were in their teens. They were in, entrusted alone in the cockpit of a P-51 by their country. Most uh, hadn't yet seen combat. Some couldn't even drive a car, but all were given the confidence of their country to pilot what was at the time the world's most sophisticated fighter plane. So these young kids <laughs> essentially are charged with a, a tremendous responsibility responsibility that fly into the, the situation you've just described and somehow have to get their heads together so that they're ready in the morning to fly off and uh, carry out the mission that they've been assigned. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to consider. That is absolutely correct. And these guys were volunteers. Yes. They, none, of them, uh, none of them had to be pilots. As a matter of fact, the young man who lost his life, uh, First Lieutenant Phil Schlomberg, 19 years old, did not even 
the last combat death of the war. We never found his body. Uh, he's memorialized that the tablets of the missing at the Punchbowl Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu. Um, he was the youngest of 10 kids from a Jewish immigrant family in Brooklyn. Um, they were poor. Um, his aunt, uh, Melanie Sloan, who is... By the way, this is an interesting connection is the mother of Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Phil was Scarlett Johansson's great aunt. His mother, Melanie Sloan, has told me, and I, this is recounted in the book, that that family was so poor that they would sell, uh, they'd go out to Coney Island, sell ice, they sell ice with, uh, with, uh, with a sweetener in it on the beach to, you know, the hot beachgoers to make a little bit of extra money. They were that poor. And, uh, but this, this young man, was the valedictorian of his class, Abraham yes. Lincoln High School, and scored so high on the Army entrance exam, he could have done anything. They said, do anything you want. You go into Intel, you get an office job, best job, work for general, where you want. He wanted to fly planes because he wanted to take the battle of the enemy, and he wound up losing his life. You know, where do we find these men today? But that's another reason, you know, we need to think back. Uh, it's been said that those who, you know, of course, are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. And, uh, History is so important because it helps us to understand human nature. We must never forget the real face of evil. There's evil in the world, and we have to take a stand against it. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Don Brown is my guest. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Don Brown. He's the co-author with Captain Jerry Yellen of the fascinating book, The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. Now, just before the break, we were talking about Phil Schlamberg, who was a very good friend of uh, Captain uh, Jerry Yellen. He had had a premonition the night before this mission that actually coincided with the end of the war. Um, and yet he was willing to uh, to go into that cockpit and and fly, even though he had said to his friend um, that he wasn't he wasn't going to come back. That he, if he went on that mission, uh, he would not return. That is that's true, George. As a matter of fact, Captain Yellen, um, who sort of mentored Phil, mm-hmm. uh, had flown. This was his nineteenth combat mission over Japan alone, and these were long flights, four hours one way. Attack the target four hours back, strapped into a cockpit, and a really you can't get up and, and move around. We're in L.A. right now. Uh, we were at the Reagan Library last night where we kicked this book off. We'll be at the Nixon Library uh, tomorrow night. But I flew from Charlotte, which is where I live, on the East Coast to L.A. day before yesterday. Five hour flight across the country, but you get up, and move around. You know, it's you know, there's, you can stretch your legs. They serve you stuff to eat. The bombers in World War II could do that, but not these fighter pilots. They were strapped in with nowhere to go. And so these are hard missions to begin with. Well, Jerry had flown 18 combat missions, was much more experienced than Phil. Phil had flown with him as his wingman before, but Phil had this premonition he wasn't going to make it. He told Jerry about it. Jerry tried to get Phil to Phil. Go to the flight surgeon. Um, tell him that we can substitute you out. Phil refused to do it. Then Captain Yellen, Jerry Yellen, went to the squadron commander, Major Jim Tapp, said, Major, um, you know, uh, Phil's having this rumination. We got we to pull him. We got to substitute him out. Because, you know, you want your fighter pilots yeah. to have an edge to them. Mm-hmm. And this commanding officer said, well, he's got to go through the flight search. You know the rules. Jerry tried to get Phil. Please go to the flight search. We can, we can swap you out for this Phil Schlomberg refused to be. He had a premonition. He was not going to make it. And yet, he, and with an opportunity not to fly that mission, he still insisted upon flying that mission. And his life was cut short at the age of 19 years. 
and his death marked the last combat death of a great war that had killed and taken the lives of so many, many, many millions of men and women, too, um, which has been the the greatest and most devastating war yet to engulf the planet. I think it's important to mention, too, that he had actually fulfilled his mission. They were actually on their way back. You pointed out this is a very long flight from back from Japan. He had completed his mission. They were flying up into the clouds, and it was at that point that he literally disappeared, and uh, it was learned later that, you know, he probably was taken down by shrapnel, uh, but he'd completed his mission, and uh, when uh, Captain Yellen arrived back in Iwo Jima, learned that uh, the war had officially ended, although word had not spread. That is correct. That's correct. They, uh, th- this flight, to put it in perspective, and you mentioned it in your, your excellent introduction, was five days after the United States had dropped a second atomic bomb on Japan. Right? That was dropped by between Uncle Boxcar on August the 9th of 1945 on a city called Nagasaki. We dropped two bombs. Really, the only bombs we had in the arsenal were ready. There were three more that were under development. Only two were ready. And uh, we're hoping to deliver a devastating blow by these two great bombs that have been dropped like nothing anyone had ever seen. Well, the Japanese did not surrender to Hiroshima, and then they did not after we dropped the second one on Nagasaki, they were given an opportunity to surrender again. And uh, they did not. And as a matter of fact, President Truman basically called the bombing off for a period of a day or so to give them an opportunity to surrender. When they did not surrender, he ordered the flights back because we've been, we have been hitting them by the air since November of 44, first with the bombers, and then since March of Actually, April of 45, when the, the fighters started attacking, we've been spending air war against them. And what was going on in Georgine is we were, we were preparing for a great land invasion of Japan. We were carrying out the same air campaign that was a, was the same air campaign that had been a prelude to Operation Overlord, the invasion of Europe. The, you start bombing the enemy, that was the strategy. You start weakening their industrial capacity and weakening their military capacity, and then you evade. But you know, this operation that was underway, Operation um, Downfall, the invasion of Japan, we had lost 400,000 men uh, to that day in World, in, in World War II before August of 45. 400,000 Americans already lost their lives. It was estimated that if we'd had to invade Japan, another one million Americans would have lost their lives. It would have been twice the losses that we'd already suffered. And Europe had already fallen. You know, Hitler was dead at this time. You know, uh, President Roosevelt passed away. Harry Truman uh, had been president for uh, just a little over a, um, a couple of months, really. And so, um, and so, you know, we were preparing to strike them. And, uh, and on that morning, um, when these these guys were called up again. You know, uh, there had been great hope amongst the pilots on Iwo Jima that the bombs do the job. What they did not know, even as they lifted off into the sunrise that morning to, for their mission, for this final mission, there was a coup attempt actively going mm-hmm. on against the emperor by mid-level army officers who wanted to stop him from taking the airways and who wanted to stop him from announcing surrender because they wanted to fight on. So we came very, very close because there were competing factions within Japan on the issue of whether or not they would surrender. And thank the Lord, you know, cooler heads prevail. But, you know, Jerry Yellen has told me that 
um, he would have lost his life. He, he doesn't believe he would have he would have lived had we had to invade Japan because their group would have been the, the tip of the spear, and he had dodged so many bullets, literally up to that point. And I've had other World War II veterans tell me the same thing. But uh, that's how close we came to this being even more of a colossal disaster than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, World War II veterans rarely talk about is the the uh, the. Well, uh, the aftermath, the, the burden they carry of having uh, been engaged in, in war. And I know that um, Mr. Yellen, he, uh, for 30 years, suffered from post-traumatic stress. There wasn't a name for it then. There wasn't a way to treat it at the time. Um, it was difficult to transition from his experience at war and uh, back into civilian life. Um, talk a little bit about that challenge and uh, his return to Iwo Jima, the impact that had in his healing process. You know, it's uh, you're right. Um, this thing called post-traumatic stress, we, we've seen the symptoms for years, but really started to sort of identify a little bit after World War I when it was called shell shock mm-hmm. or the thousand-yard stare. You know, guys would stare across, they'd be staring. And then in World War II, it, it became known as battle fatigue. Uh, there's a, a great movie from 1970 um, called Patton, George, George C. Scott, great classic movie. There's a scene. When Patton goes into the into the tent after they've invaded Sicily, and he's he's giving medals, purple hearts, to these soldiers who've been wounded, and one one you know one soldier is crying, and uh, Patton says, you know, what, what's what's the matter with you? And the soldier says, uh, I just can't take it, sir. And the and the the uh, physician says, it's battle fatigue. Pat slaps him. You know, oh, I remember, remember that. that scene very well. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what it was. They called it battle fatigue. But in more recent years, after Vietnam, we understand that we've, under, we've because of studies by physicians that the shock, constant shock, will have an effect on the emotion. And in Jerry Yellen's case, you know, he was flying with stiff upper lip. But in, in the months, the last four, three months of the war, really from well, May, June, July, and then in August, he began to lose a slew of his very close friends. Um, he had a good friend named Dick Schraubel, who, who was shot down over Chichi Jima, the very same place President George Bush was shot down over, about 70 miles north of Iwo Jima. Schraubel landed in the water. He'd been Jerry's wingman. Jerry was running out of fuel, had to head out of Iwo Jima. There was a gallant effort to try to save Schraubel. He was just off the coast, and they were, you know, the American uh, the American Navy flew a Catalina in. They tried to come in and get him under Japanese gunfire. Finally, Schraubel was killed. Then you had finally the death of this young Phil Schlomberg, who Jerry, and as I mentioned, they were the only two Jewish pilots in the squadron in, in both the New York City area. Jerry had taken under his wing, and it hit Jerry very, very hard. He yeah. felt responsible for, for Phil's death. He wished he had he'd insisted more that he not fly the mission. And he became sort of unable to function for a number of years, not really knowing what it was. Well, of course, it was post-traumatic stress. One of the things that helped in Jerry's healing, interestingly enough, was that his son, wound up going to Japan on a work study and wound up, believe it or not, marrying a Japanese girl. And just to hear Jerry tell that story is amazing because the girl's father had been a kamikaze pilot, you know, and found out that Jerry was a P-51 pilot. It was rough at first, but he has little Japanese grandchildren. Now, all this has helped in the healing process, but Jerry, to his credit, got me on to his credit, recognizes the devastating effect of PTSD and has taken his message uh, he's still serving this country to young veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam and other wars where this is still a real problem, yeah. encouraging uh, these men and women also to, to get help. 
and he's been a real treasure in that regard, too, and I appreciate that so much. But it was the son, man, a Japanese girl that led, began to lead me the road to healing, but it's taken years, you know, it's been yeah. 70 years now, and it's taken all this time within the last, really, 10 years for him to find healing. Well, I so appreciate your sharing his story in The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. It's published by Regnery History, a great read, and uh, I think you won't be able to put it down once you start, so make sure you have plenty of time when you pick it up. Hey, thanks so much, Don Brown. We look forward to the next conversation. Oh, you got it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. And by the way, more on that story about the uh, son marrying the Japanese girl, the uh, daughter of a kamikaze pilot. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but I, I certainly enjoyed hearing the story of uh, Captain Yellen and his colleagues in the last battle of uh, of World War II. Um, I, I didn't have a chance to talk about this, but he grew up in Hillside, uh, uh, New Jersey. He graduated from high school in 1941. He worked in a steel factory. He wanted to save enough money to go to college. But of course, December 7th struck and he returned home from working that night shift. He learned about it. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor decided immediately to uh, enlist in the Air Force. He was 17. Well, his parents tried to dissuade him. He wasn't the only 17-year-old at the time who wanted adamantly to uh, serve his country. It was my duty, he said, as a young man to serve his country. My country was attacked by a foreign country. It was my duty. Uh, a flying enthusiast, he made uh, model planes. He enlisted in uh, 1942, the 15th of February. It was his 18th birthday. And when he took his eye exam, it was found that he had 20-30 vision in one of his eyes, which would have, would have uh, prevented him from flying. So the doctor told him to sit in the dark, to eat carrots and not read anything, then retake the test three days later. Well, he went to the doctor. Uh, he went uh, one better over the doctor, making an appeal to his mother who worked for the draft board. He asked her to bring him uh, a copy of the eye chart, which he memorized. She did. He memorized it. He passed the test. Well, uh, most of his experience, his combat experience, took place in uh, Iwo, on Iwo Jima. The battle proved to be longer and deadlier than planners had anticipated. It depleted much of the U.S. military's resources, and the U.S. abandoned its original plan to invade the Japanese mainland, turn to the atomic bomb to end the war, as we uh, as we discussed. But one of the things that he writes, uh, again, in the introduction of the book that I didn't have a chance to, uh, to talk much about was the fact that his son married a Japanese woman in 1988, and he he says that for him is when the healing began. Um, his, the Japanese woman his son married, her father was a pilot in the Japanese Imperial Army Air Service. Uh, he also flew missions in Iwo Jima. So Yellen's son's future in-laws opposed the marriage until the men met. They shared their experiences in Iwo Jima. Uh, he says of that meeting or prior to it, I hated him and I he hated me. We met for the first time three days before the wedding. And he said any man that could fly a P-51 against the Japanese and live must be a brave man. And I want the blood of that man to flow through the veins of my grandchildren. 
Wow, what a statement. Then uh, Yellen says, my son got married and started having children and my whole life expanded. I saw the human beings were killed in the war and they were kind people, they were bright people, and now they're my family. This, this is a quote. Well, through the marriage, the two wartime enemies made peace, a process that Yellen documented in a novel published last year of War and Weddings is the title of that book. But he still never considered visiting Iwo Jima until he was offered an opportunity to commemorate his fallen brothers. And as you heard, 11 in combat, 5 in training from the 78th Fighter Squadron in a ceremony during the Reunion of Honor. When uh, his 18-year-old half-Japanese son heard of these plans, he expressed interest in seeing the place where both of his grandfathers had once fought each other. And Yellen says of that uh, of that trip and that meeting, I just didn't want to relive all that. But because I have a Japanese grandson and because he wanted to go, I had to go, Yellen said. And I'm happy, delighted, thrilled that I went. I cried most of the day from the moment we landed. Many memories came back and we did a memorial for the 16 guys. It was like closing the circle. Anyway, the rest of that uh, remarkable story. Well, putting that in a broader context, I wanted to mention that uh, two U.S. service members were killed in Afghanistan yesterday. Uh, We are reminded that there are men and women uh, who wear the uniform of the United States who are defending our interests at this very moment. And sometimes, although their experience is very different than the experience of Captain Yellen on Iwo Jima, uh, they uh, are confronted with an enemy and their lives are taken. Well, two U.S. service members were killed on Wednesday with their uh, convoy. They came under attack in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan's Kandahar province. An Afghan police official in Kandahar said a suicide bomber hit the convoy on international of international troops on the edge of the southern city of Kandahar. Um, Resolute support can confirm uh, that a NATO convoy was attacked this afternoon. This is a quote from yesterday in Kandahar. The attack did cause casualties. The American forces in southern Afghanistan are part of more than 8,400 troops currently deployed in that country. The combined U.S. and NATO troops contingent currently in Afghanistan is about 13,500. The Trump administration is deciding now whether to send about 4,000 or more U.S. soldiers there in an attempt to stem the Taliban gains. U.S. and international forces operate primarily out of Kandahar, the airfield in southern Afghanistan. There are also more than 300 Marines and Army soldiers in neighboring uh, neighboring Helmand province. Kandahar is considered to be the spiritual home of the Taliban, so this is a particularly thorny area. News of that bombing comes just a day after two U.S. soldiers were injured when their Black Hawk helicopter made a hard landing in the um, in a, a separate district, the Taliban, in a statement, claimed it opened fire on the helicopter, killing everyone on board. The insurgents routinely exaggerate their gains and their casualties uh, that they inflict in battle. On Monday, two attackers stormed the Iraqi embassy in central Kabul. They killed numerous guards before using stick bombs to break through the embassy gates there. Police officials said the Associated Press, or told the Associated Press, rather, that a car bomb exploded outside the embassy, followed by an attempt by gunmen to enter the building, which is located in the center of the Afghan uh, capital. And then in April, two U.S. Army Rangers were killed by ISIS fighters in this same province just weeks after the U.S. military dropped the mother of all bombs, or Moab, as it's called on an ISIS cave complex. So there are men and women in uniform in harm's way whose stories, uh, the details of which vary rather dramatically from the story we heard earlier today uh, about Captain uh, yell in his own recollections of that uh, that season of his life many decades ago. 
but they too are vulnerable to the kinds of dangers that uh, donning a military uniform uh, often bring um, bring with it. So want to uh, acknowledge these two U.S. service members. We don't know many uh, other details, uh, but it reminds us that there are still those who are standing strong in our defense. Uh, I keep them in my prayers. I know many of you do as well, and we need to be a grateful nation uh, that lives up to the promise that we will never forget. All right, tomorrow on the program, we're working on uh, some uh, some things. In fact, do we have anything booked, James, for tomorrow? He's nodding his head, yes. He's also chewing, so whether or not I get any details remains to be seen, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, you can't tell me what we're doing. So anyway, it will be a surprise to us all. I'm guessing later this evening I'll find out, but um, it's going to be really good and it's going to be really hot. So there you have it. What more do you need to know on a uh, Thursday afternoon? I also want to mention that Dan Rice and I tomorrow morning are going to see his infectious diseases doctor and the uh, nurse that comes to our home uh, once a week to change Dan's dressing and all of that for his uh, pick line. Uh, indicated that the doctor might, and I'm not sure if this is an informed uh, statement or if it's just a guess, but uh, that the doctor might uh, clear him to uh, end the um, antibiotics that have been coursing through his body for the last uh, six weeks, this being week number six. And so we're um, we're optimistic and hopeful that that will be the case. I, I think it will probably require a brief hospitalization to have the pick line removed, although I'm not sure about that. But we're going to find out a lot of things tomorrow morning uh, in that appointment. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and looking forward to uh, reporting back to you tomorrow as to um, what the future holds for us and for Dan Rice. Again, appreciate your prayers, and we'll let you know uh, what happens, as well as what's going to happen on the show. We're out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow for the mystery show for Thursday. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.